Welcome to another edition of the Precious Snowflakes podcast. This is a special deoperationalized edition for what day is today? It's the uh, deoperationalized. Yes, uh, <laughs> deoperationalized. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what it means. Do you? It's Thursday. All I know is that it's been accomplished. It is Thursday, April 6, 2017. <laughs> and I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. <laughs> Today, we'll be discussing the nuclear option in the Senate vis-a-vis uh, Neil Gorsuch and the most precious of this week's snowflakes, <laughs> the middle school, I want to say, that has replaced its ladies' room mirrors with uh with posters that say things like you're beautiful which is almost as useful as a mirror it's affirming yes with a affir- with affirmational posters who cares if i need uh, to fix my hair i'd rather be affirmed wouldn't you right so we'll, i could you can look like a hot mess but at least you'll know that you're special right so we'll we'll get to that we'll get to <laughs> that in in the second round but we're going to start with uh with the Supreme Court, the filibuster, and the nuclear option. All right. We have been deoperationalized, right? I You know what I'm referring to, right? I don't. So when so Steve Bannon was unceremoniously kicked off of the National Security Council yesterday. And the excuse that the White House gave was that, well, he was he was really there to keep an eye on Flynn. Right and his and his purpose for being he was there, there to keep an eye on the national security that, advisor. Well, that that Susan Rice right. had had operationalized the National Security Council, and Bannon's job was to deoperationalize it, and therefore mission accomplished. That's it. He no longer needs to be on the principals committee. That is. What the so hell does special. that mean? Deoperationalized. I know. <laughs> Made it work. I don't know what right. does that mean. Uh. I mean, isn't their point to do operations in a way? Uh, <laughs> I will say this. Is it like deconstructing the administrative state? He, he broke it. He right. threw a monkey wrench in it. And now, <laughs> basically, to, to, to break it. That's essentially what they're saying. It's like, okay, he broke it. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore. All right. And now McMaster is doing a great job at making sure it doesn't work. Right. So a few years ago, when uh, Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood was democratically elected president of Egypt, there was a lot of understandable consternation. He was elected from a party that was more or less a terrorist organization as well as a political party. He wasn't doing too well as president. And at some point, there was a military coup that overthrew him. And the people of Egypt thought, oh, fair enough. Uh, because in Egypt, the military was seen as being sort of centrist and secular and very technocratic, very mm-hmm. focused on good government and getting things done. And I find it amazing that we have already reached that point in the Trump administration where, like, Michael Flynn gets booted and, you know, Trump immediately goes to, you know, other generals, current, like, sitting generals to say, like, Please come in and run the National Security Council. And the collective American response is, uh, fair enough. Like, we trust them more than we trust you. And H.R. McMaster seems to be doing a bang-up job at depoliticizing <laughs> the National Security Council. And that's a good thing. And, like, who are the standout members of Trump's cabinet so far? Well, the ones we seem to like the most are people like James Mattis, another military guy. Who was, like, half jackhammer, half phone there. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, there's just sort of a general feeling that that other than Flynn, the the various military people who have been brought in by Trump are maybe the most reasonable parts of his government right now. And that's a weird state of being for us all to be in, where we trust military leaders more than we trust the civilians who have been elected to oversee them. You know, that's how Egypt ended up with a military coup and everyone's saying, oh, that's okay. Yeah, oddly enough, I'm sort of, you know, the idea of a military coup seems really scary until you start thinking, well, the alternative is that we have Trump. Yeah, like, I, I, it's interesting. I'd never thought it, it, it's an interesting comparison to Mohammed Morsi, someone who's a a real ideologue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not uh, not the the smartest uh, guy around. I don't know. It's kind of maybe I don't want to insult Mohammed Morsi, but you know, <laughs> kind of a religious zealot, a guy who didn't really understand politics or what he was getting into, and thought he could uh, yeah, you know unfair. go up against the judiciary and win, and he lost. The judiciary smacked him down when he tried to seize all this autocratic power for himself. And now, now the Muslim Brotherhood, theocracy. <laughs> yeah, now the Muslim Brotherhood are back to being enemies of the state in Egypt, mm-hmm. and they're being systematically hunted down by the new moderate secular military dictator of the country. But uh, back to going nuclear. Back to going nuclear. So, so the filibuster—it's it, busted. Right, the filibuster has been busted. To a certain for a degree. Su- for a Supreme, for a Supreme Court, Court nomination. We still have it for legislation, at least for now. Yeah. In the so, Senate. For those of you who are not, a, who are not a, you know, government nerds, uh, the House of Representatives, anything, it measures, uh, they don't confirm nominees in the House, but uh, in the, generally a simple majority is all you need to get anything you vote on through the House. Whereas in the United States Senate, for the last, I don't know, umpteen number of years, uh, it's uh, it's they have they've they, it basically effectively has required sixty senators to 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 yeah. move anything forward, whether it be legislation or a Supreme Court nominee. Harry Reid uh, a few years ago got rid of the filibuster for lower court uh, nominations. So so that's that's a that's a thing of the past. But uh, it actually used to be two thirds, didn't it, back in the day? And then they lowered it to sixty, I believe. So here's the thing: the filibuster. Uh, the filibuster is much more of a modern invention and the closer you look at it, a thing of total weirdness Mm -hmm. than we expect. We've got such a, such a short term memory about (laughs) our own political institutions that right now the filibuster, this requirement that it takes 60 votes to end a debate before you can even vote on a thing or a person that is really fairly young. Um, And not only is it really fairly young, but it really runs counter to a lot of the things our country was founded on. Uh, And I'll get to that in a moment. Um, So let's talk about what, you know, the context of this is is so interesting and weird because... Uh, most of our listeners will know that, of course, what happened with this is that Antonin Scalia, may he rest in peace, passed away while President Obama was still president of the United States with like a year left in his second term. Uh, and, o- and Obama chose to nominate Merrick Garland, a judge 
of whom I am not particularly fond personally. There are a lot of issues that I have with Merrick Garland as a Supreme Court choice. But the Constitution is very clear. It is the president's job to nominate Supreme Court justices uh, with the advice and consent of the United States Senate. The Republicans who controlled the Senate decided that even though President Barack Obama was the democratically elected president of the United States, having won both the popular vote and the Electoral College for his second term, um, that even though that was all true, that because there was an election ramping up, uh, it wasn't appropriate for him to nominate a successor. This is really deeply unheard of. So they used Senate rules. They used Senate procedure to block him by refusing to hold hearings uh, where he would be interviewed by the Senate Judiciary Committee. They just refused to have him be interviewed. And they held this up, and now Trump has nominated... Trump was elected, of course, and now he's nominated Neil Gorsuch, who... In some respects, I like more than I like Merrick Garland, but um, Gorsuch is still a stolen seat. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe Absolutely. that it's a stolen seat and that even though I don't particularly like Merrick Garland and I might like Gorsuch more, I think that they should they should or should have seated Merrick Garland first and waited for the next person to die or retire before nominating Neil Gorsuch. Um And so the Democrats, agreeing with me on this one issue, uh, decided to filibuster, decided that they were going to not allow debate to end and just continue speaking and speaking and speaking until it became impossible for there to be an actual vote on him until the Republicans decided, not having 60 votes, to end the debate They changed the rules so that it only takes 50 votes to end debate and move to the question, you know, to voting on the person, um, specifically for Supreme Court justices. And now Neil Gorsuch is going to be in the Supreme Court. That's basically guaranteed. Um, So that's where we are. I mean, uh, to me, I mean, mean, we could go through the whole history of, you know, all the different rules that have gone back and forth in the Senate. That's what I'm about to do. They narrowly avoided this nuclear option back in the mid-2000s during the Bush administration when there was talk of having, you know, Dick Cheney basically suspend the rules and say, oh, on constitutional grounds, which could have triggered all sorts of... I don't know, what do, you, what do they call it? A constitutional crisis, whatever. But they reached a, a detente on that and said that, all right, well, except for extraordinary circumstances, we're not going to right to, so, to, to, to use the filibuster unless it's real. But it, the way that it, it is now, basically, which started with this whole Garland thing, thank you, Scalia, for dying very inconveniently. But effectively, does this mean that We'll, we're, we're, the, the, we will never again be able to con- confirm Supreme Court nominees from the opposing party. Or will a president ever be able to get a nominee through an, an opposing Senate? Right. So that's right. That's the problem here. Is there, are like, two, there are two factors here. One is the filibuster, and the other is the idea that the Republicans were able to just unilaterally block Merrick Garland. Right. The Republicans, I actually consider myself to be a fairly strict constitutionalist. So for me... Boy, does he. Boy, do I. So for me, 
I celebrate the end of the filibuster for the Supreme Court at the same time that I thoroughly denounce what the Republicans did to Merrick Garland. You know, I, I believe that that was unconstitutional and absurd. Mm -hmm. But I think that ending the filibuster for the Supreme Court is actually a great development. And it's hard to know what will happen with future nominees now. Well, of course, the thing is, it was very rarely ever used, the filibuster. Well, so let's, let's talk history for a moment. And this is, this is actually, if I have an area of expertise, this is kind of it. Okay. Um, so tell us about those other Supreme Court nominees who were filibustered. I'm not going to talk about Supreme Court nominees. I'm going to talk about supermajorities. Okay. So here's the thing. Right now, it's very popular to say... Well, you know, President Trump, he won the Electoral College vote, but he didn't win the popular vote. The Electoral College is really just a just a relic of the past that was used to make sure that slaveholders continued to have power when they were outnumbered by non-slaveholders. And that may be partially true, but it is, I think, insanely hypocritical for someone to criticize the Philip or for someone to criticize the Electoral College for being a relic of the past, when at the same time, they support a supermajority requirement in the Senate. <laughs> and the reason for that is this. When James Madison was, was working as the primary author of the Constitution, writing the Constitution, writing Federalist papers supporting the Constitution, he talked about two things, the tyranny of the majority and the tyranny of the minority. And I, of course, mean political minorities and political majorities not racial or ethnic minorities, as someone once thought when I talked about this on an airplane. Um, tyranny of the minority is the part that is really important here. Because when the Constitution was being written, southern slave states and their slave-owning representatives argued that there must be a supermajority requirement in the United States Senate, and probably in the House as well, in order to make sure that, that an end to slavery could not be pushed through the Senate. That was their really their principal goal. They didn't want slavery to end. Therefore, they wanted to make sure that even though non-slave states outnumbered slave states, that slave states, by maintaining a minority, would still be able to maintain slavery. They wanted a 66% supermajority required in the Senate because they could guarantee that slave-owning states would be at least a third of the country. Um, and Madison argued vehemently against, against this, despite himself being from a slave state. Um, and he ended up winning the argument. And his argument was that when you, when you require a supermajority in order to get anything done... What you're really doing is you're allowing a minority, a super minority, hmm. you know, of 34% or in this case, 41% to block literally anything. And instead well, that's, of... That's the Senate. That's, that's, that's the whole... And, and that's what a lot of people but will say. But that isn't the whole Well, idea. that's the culture of the Senate. It's supposed to be more uh, bipartisan and more, and more collegial. And the ideas, like the fact that individual senators can put hold, anonymous holds on bills and other so, stuff so like that. The idea is they're supposed to be the grown-ups who work together and not just well, this, be as blindly partisan as the House. This speaks to a fundamental question, and that is, what is the purpose of the Senate... Versus the purpose of the House, why do we have two chambers of Congress? Right. 
And when the Constitution was written, the idea was that all of that elder statesmanliness would come from the fact that the Senate's job is not to represent voters, it's to represent the state governments. The way the Constitution was written, members of the House were elected by popular vote, but members of the Senate were chosen by their state governments Mm -hmm. because we're a collection of 50 states, not one giant mega nation. That was the idea then. Over time, things changed, right? And we reformed, and now senators are popularly elected. But still, their job is, you're right, to be part of a more select body with longer terms to represent the states in a sort of broader, more far-reaching, further-looking way. But when you require a bipartisan 60% bulletproof supermajority to get anything done... That's not effect. You're not putting power in the hands of popular consensus. You're putting power in the hands of the extreme minorities, the extreme ideological minorities who can come together to block something more easily because they only need 34% or 41%. And that is what Madison called the tyranny of the minority. Where minority, well, sure. where minority interest groups well, can exert undue power over the rest of the American people. Well, and, and you know, here, here we have a situation where the Democrats are effectively neutered in, in the federal government. You know, they've, they've lost the White House, they've lost both chambers, and now the balance of power in the Supreme Court is going to tip back towards the conservatives, well, where it looked just a few months ago like it was going to go the opposite way. So really, well, the, the, question, the question in my mind is, well, how much, I mean, should there be, should the minority power ha- have, you know, any sort of check on the majority? How, how, how much of, a, of, a, of an ability should they have to slow things well, they down do, they do have in a our check. system? They do have a check, and that check is the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Even with all three branches of the government holding sort of conservative Republican, you know, leanings as their heads, uh, they all still check each other, and they have different agendas, and they still have to get things done. In the House where you only require a simple majority to pass something, the president was not able to pass a health care bill. Democrats said no, and mm-hmm. there wasn't enough consolidation well, within the Republican get, they caucus. They couldn't get their own you know, caucus in gear. <laughs> right, so that's, so that's the check. If, if Democrats, there are conservative Democrats who have already... Uh, who already well, have proven records of voting with Trump. But this this has nothing to do with, with the Democrats. So this has everything to do with the Republicans no, not I'm, being able I'm to get saying, their act together I'm just saying and if, agree on what they're doing. If Henry Quayler of Texas had been willing or Quayar, I whatever. I'm sorry if I butchered your name, Henry. Um, if he and others were willing to cross the aisle to work in a bipartisan health bill, something would have passed. But because they blocked it, and because they and the media were able to highlight the various problems in the Republican health care bill, it got killed uh, because the president does not have a majority governing coalition. He has himself and two other branches of government that, even though they are ruled by the same party, are effectively hostile to him and to his agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the checks come in. The How the filibuster came about is that the founding fathers of our nation and the first numbers of Congresses all agreed 
you know, the majority agreed with Madison that you just need 50% to pass something in the Senate because requiring a supermajority would put too much hands or too much power, too much hands, too much power in the hands of extreme minority sure. interests. Well, and and that, and that was the norm for a while. And then like every other institution, like every other English speaking parliamentary institution, they adapted Robert's rules of order to be their system of rules. Only they decided in the 1800s after the constitution had been, you know, ratified that they would use Robert's rules of order, but they would vote to change those rules at will. And the first thing they did was they removed the ability of a majority of senators to vote to end debate and move to the vote. And for years, they required unanimous consensus in order to go to the vote. Everyone was allowed to speak as long as they wanted, you know, from any position they wanted until debate reached a natural conclusion and sure. then they would vote. Well, and they all had enough respect for each other that that was able to work. But that's now one of the things that kind of su surprises me is that they were able to change the rules and invoke the nuclear option just with a simple majority vote. Because the you rules aren't legal. They're not right. in law. They're just the rules that everyone agrees on. So do you think on. that there's anything that should require a supermajority to change? Is there anything that should have that extra degree of safety where it should be like, where, 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 that should basically require it be a, a bipartisan agreement or yes. a broad agreement? One thing and one thing only. I support the fact that a supermajority of states and a supermajority of senators must confirm a constitutional amendment. Yeah, it's not like three... Is it three quarters or is It's it, three quarters. Uh, <laughs> um, it's like we were just talking about direct election of senators. That was one thing they all... I mean, the 17th Amendment is what made that possible. And one of the... you know they, Which I, I frankly do not And support. I was not around... What was it? In 1912 or whatever. But the problem... The idea the, back then was that the, they felt like the state legislators were too preoccupied with picking senators. And well, there were all a, these... And there were all these business... There were, they basically felt like the whole process was corrupt. That people... That, you know, businesses and corporations were railroad barons and whatnot were bribing state legislators to pick their preferred senators. And so they decided to give the power back to the voters well that was also that was that was the peak of another wave of populism the same kind of people who came out of the woodwork to support and vote for donald trump had been coming out of the woodwork to support and vote for oh what william jennings bryan mm. william jennings bryan who came into the democratic oh, yes. party which was still a party of southern segregationists uh, I can't help but think of him and not think of the Scopes Monkey Scopes Trial. Scopes Monkey Trial. Well, that says a lot about the sort of populist <laughs> nature of the Democratic Party. That, you know, people talk about the Democrats and the Republicans switch places at some point in history. They never really did. Uh, they may have changed positions in ways that resemble a switch, but the Democratic Party, as organized by Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren, was always the party of populism, was the party of the working class, was the party of the poorest Americans. William Jennings Bryan, being both super pro-direct election of senators and also super anti-evolution, that was just a reflection of the poor working class in America. 
The fact <laughs> of the matter is... Isn't it amazing that we're still arguing about this? <laughs> yeah, really. Years. Over 100 years later, we're still debating the exact same issues under, on the exact same terms. Um, the exact same arguments. There is, there is a really terrible book with a really great title that I recommend people uh, glance through... And not read too thoroughly because it's horribly written. Uh-huh. Uh, called one uh, called uh, Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State. Uh-huh. That is a breakdown of where people vote for Democrats, where people vote for Republicans, and what their demographics are. And what that will show you is that even today, even right now, with the exception of the 2016 election, which was a weird one, the poorest people in every state still vote for Democrats and the richest people in every state still vote for Republicans. The biggest difference between red and blue states is that in blue states, affluent people are more willing to switch to the Democrats based on their social values. Whereas in red states, even though this feels counterintuitive to the sort of media narrative in red states, it's much more economically stratified with the poor, the real poor voting for Democrats and the middle and upper classes voting for Republicans. Now, that's very fascinating. You just gave a free plug to that book, too, even though you said it, you don't like it. It was written by a statistician. It should have been a 20-page paper, <laughs> but you don't make any money publishing a 20-page paper, so he true. blew it up into a 200-page book. Well, okay, you've just given us the... Uh... But yeah, Google it. It's red state, blue state, rich state, poor state. If you can manage to suffer through it, it is actually very insightful. So before we move on to the next topic, just another, you know, just back to the current, you know, situation with the uh, with the nuclear option. The uh, back when when Harry Reid first went nuclear back in 2013 for lower court appointees, uh, a lot of Republicans predicted that uh, that they would regret it, that they had, you know that they had started this process because. You well, know, because eventually the Republicans would be back in power, and and they would, and they, and the Democrats would be the ones who would who would lose out on the on the losing end of a filibuster. Well, what do, so now the question is: Are the Republicans going to regret this? So or two, four, six, <laughs> eighteen months from now. <laughs> so what do what do career politicians fear the most? Career politicians don't don't fear the most economic cataclysm or global war what they fear the most is loss of power Mm -hmm. and there's nothing more neutering than ending up in the minority and then not being able to get anything done and so both parties whenever they're in the minority love the filibuster and decry it being chipped away at as being chipping away at democracy but the reality is uh as i said in a facebook post earlier um the the filibuster is is a historical is an historical aberration it exists because of a quirk of rules that are not even oh laws and it runs counter to the to the brilliant designs i think of our founding fathers who wrote the constitution but back in the present day what do you think the strategic reason for the democrats choosing this point with this nominee to invoke the filibuster and force uh, McConnell to go nuclear. Why do you think they're doing it now? Why why are they not saving their, as Trump would say, their powder for the next fight? Why? I mean, is it just that it does? I mean, is it just because it would delay the inevitable? I mean, they could they could wait for the next nominee and just do it then. I mean, Gorsuch is going through so regardless. I think that the Democrats are totally justified 
in using everything in their power to block Neil Gorsuch because of the unprecedented blocking of Merrick Garland. So it's so it's about the principle of it. Yeah, it is rare for me to 100% back up the Democrats on something as a former as as someone who used to describe himself as a moderate Democrat and who is now thoroughly a libertarian. There's not a lot that I agree with the Democratic establishment on, but in this case, I am 100% behind them. I I'm glad that they tried to use everything in their power to block him. But I do think that for them to then turn around and say, uh, ending the filibuster is the end of democracy. That I think is hypocritical because, (laughs) because the filibuster is exactly the kind of thing that slave owning States would have wanted in order to keep slavery. That's those were the States who wanted a supermajority in the Senate in the first place for, for the people who say that the electoral college is a historical aberration for those people to then defend the filibuster is hypocritical. They come from the same place. So no regrets. No regrets. And you don't think the Republicans will regret it? I think the Republicans are going to regret this in a huge way. And actually, 538 wrote up uh, a whole piece about how ending the filibuster completely, like ending the legislative filibuster, which may be right around the corner, actually benefits Democrats more in the long term than it does the Republicans. I think the Republicans are going to regret this the next time they lose a majority in the Senate. <laughs> I think I think Democrats won't in the long run. And and more to the point, I think the American people will benefit from the end of the filibuster. Well, there you go. So, uh, cue uh, the song uh, Mirror in the Bathroom, Chris. Uh, Mirror in the Bathroom. Play song Mirror in the Bathroom. We're all fans of Gross Point Blank here. Mm. If you haven't seen it, go watch Gross Point Blank. Moving on to the next topic. That's a good edit point, right? Mm-hmm. So, would you like to introduce this one, Ben? I think you should, because I've been just eating the microphone on our last topic. <laughs> so, uh, there, is a, there is a high school... Uh, let me see. I, I bring up the article. Let me see. <laughs> is it a high school or a middle school? I, think, well, I thought it was a high school where God they did... Knows. These, this, this truly is a story about uh, about precious snowflakes. Some very, very precious snowflakes. Uh, in this case, um, a high school in California has hung signs in its girls' bathroom of affirmation and re- replacing the mirrors. So you're beautiful. <laughs> you're smart. Actually, I'm, I know where the, I'm familiar with this high school, Laguna Hills High School, which is known as, a, by the way, is a super affluent, like rich kid, like. Like, it makes Beverly Hills 90210 look like, you know, like the ghetto. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is like some seriously, like, super white, super privileged. They all drive BMWs, you know, <laughs> kind of high school. <laughs> right on the beach, too. Or no, maybe says, I'm thinking of, or maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Maybe I'm thinking of, uh, says the man. I, you know what? Never mind. I was thinking of Corona Del Mar. But <laughs> says the man who went to Hollywood High School. I did right? not go to Hollywood High School. What high school? Did Hollywood you go High to? School was my home school, but no, I went to uh, a very, uh, a very plebeian, uh, you know, place called the Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies, or have, Laces for short. I have no idea it, what does, that is. Doesn't the name just sound pretentious, though? I Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies. Yeah, I went to... It sounds like a euphemism for like a, a reform school, doesn't it? I went to a high school on in Bellevue that was, surprisingly, given what people stereotype about Bellevue, 
it was plurality Hispanic, hmm. um, which I think says a lot immediately because hmm. it's a lot of kids of construction workers. Well, Melissa says, believe it or not, despite what most people think when they hear that name, uh, was a- is actually a public magnet school, uh, and it's a actually. Plurality African American. I was going to say sounds although, like Stuyvesant to me. Although extremely diverse, <laughs> uh, it wasn't. Um, it was one of the. It's the uh, in it, the way that it works in LAUSD is to get into a magnet school. You basically apply through a process. Back then, at least, there was like a like a thing you filled out where you list the choices of the school you'd want to go to and you're assigned points based on various factors like your demographics, uh, uh, the the condition of like. Um, like if your homeschool is is overcrowded, that gives you uh, extra points. Okay. But it's not based on like test scores or anything like that. But it, it's considered like a college prep uh, type school, and they can toss you out if you if your grades suck, so <laughs> and send you back from whence you came. But yeah, I I never went to Hollywood. Hollywood High School is actually not as bad a terrible high school. It's actually really known for its performing arts program. I would and oddly it. enough, Laces wasn't as known for this at the time, but now it's considered a quote unquote performing arts magnet. <laughs> right, I mean we when, had performing arts when I went there, but it wasn't what it was renowned for. I went back to, at the time. I went to Sammamish High School in Bellevue, not to be confused with the city of Sammamish, but Sammamish High School in Bellevue which at the time was marketing itself as an arts magnet school with its glass blowing studio, its giant <laughs> presidium theater, um, which was fun because for me that meant I spent literally a quarter of my education in music classes because um, I just I was like a high school music major. <laughs> well, oh, neat. Yeah, I was just I'm just showing Ben the Wikipedia, the Wikipedia article. Wikipedia Does for... your school have a Wikipedia article? <laughs> God it actually knows. is. It actually is one of the top uh, high schools in Los Angeles, and as a, I, I mean, they're, they're often uh, you know in terms of how they're ranked as far as academic achievement, they're often up there with uh, private uh, uh, college prep schools like Harvard Westlake <laughs> and Marlboro School and hmm. some of those you know hoity-toity you know rich kid schools. Mine had a, <laughs> you know, what? Were you talking about Lagoon Hills? Oh, uh, oh yeah, Laguna Hills. Mirrors in the bathroom. Mirrors in the bathroom. They don't. Not in the girls' bathroom anymore. Now that we're done reminiscing <laughs> about, you. right? So, so the immediate thing to note is, isn't that wonderful? Though is that, they took know? down the actual mirrors in order to replace them with uh, affirmational posters. Yeah, it's, there's their um, like they look like they're little. Um, yeah, like little like you know sheets of paper that say things like "You are strong," "You're important," "You're worth it," "You are loved," "You are amazing," "You are capable," "You are unique and smart and beautiful," "You are enough." And I just want to say, I do want to, I do want to say right at the beginning, uh, as someone who has a heart and who has worked professionally with high school kids, uh, I do really support the sentiment of that. I've always been a big supporter of like everyone is beautiful to somebody and uh, it has been my job professionally to help high school kids sort of self-actualize to find themselves and to and to feel their strength in what they do and to and to and to really feel like they have power and influence in their own lives and to be able to do the things they want to do and feel good about themselves. That's that's been a major part of my career. Um, having said that, I just 
What happens if you want to fix your hair? What happens? Well, I think, you know, it's like what kind of girl doesn't have like a mirror in her bag? Okay, fine. It's not like it's a huge <laughs> deal. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you can just take a selfie, I guess. I'm trying to think. When I, it, at my, you know, wonderful high school, I can tell you one thing. I was, I mean, we were uh, considered a national blue ribbon school and a California distinguished school. And we were rated very highly in many ways, but I don't think uh, we would have been rated very high for the quality of our bathrooms. <laughs> and I don't remember the boys' bathroom even having a mirror in there. I just, I, I just remember. I mean, we didn't. I think um, there were like four st- stalls in most of the bathrooms, and maybe one of them had a door on it that didn't lock. You kind of had to hold it closed. I mean, <laughs> if you were really brave, it was always the one down at the end. If you wanted to sit down and and do a number two, and it was usually just like you know. Know, some like the old guy who volunteers in the library who would take a number two in the in the bathroom. I don't who would just they... quietly sit there with the door open. <laughs> I was like, why don't you go to the faculty lounge? Yeah, anyway, um, but yeah, uh, it's that it's uh, yeah, it's you can't you know, get it. They, out you didn't see a lot of guys like primping in the in the boys' room, but I guess you know the the girls' bathroom is marginally usually more sanitary for whatever reason. That is <laughs> okay. So I've heard. <laughs> And they have a mirror, right? High school, maybe. In college, no. Okay. Um, college girls' bathrooms are always just the worst. Okay. Um, I, mean, I wouldn't know. I've, I've never been in one. Ugh. Anyways. But, <laughs> uh, but here's... So let's get back to the whole precious snowflakes aspect of it. So what is what is the real... Is there... I mean, there I've read some articles like in Reason Magazine and other places talking about like how... You know, it's not the idea of, you know, that affirming messages are bad, but does it sort of, you know, reinforce this idea that everyone that, you know, that that we're just heaping so much praise on, on, on these kids that we're basically, you know, it's trying to insulate them from, from the real world where there is criticism. Well, right. And, and not are... only, not only that, is it counterproductive? Right. Because, you know, life is a never ending crucible, right? You go through experiences that challenge you and test you. Mm-hmm. And each one makes you stronger and harder. That's what working out is. Working out is testing your muscles, pushing them to their limit, and then they rebuild stronger. That's why you take protein supplements when you're trying to get swole. It's because you damage your muscles and then you rebuild them. And we hear all these stories, especially in um, horror stories in colleges, about how the students, you know, basically are demanding that they not be exposed to any kind of material they find not just offensive, but even mildly upsetting. You know that 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 uh, that might traumatize them, right? And this I mean, fits the, so neatly into that. Well, narrative. the often you know the most often cited example are are victims of sexual assault because who doesn't have sympathy for victims of sexual assault? You know, someone who's been Bill raped, Cosby. having to read a you know a story about where there's a I don't know how many pieces of literature involve violent rape scenes, but you know the whole advent of trigger warnings has just been expanded to the point where. Almost anything that that might be somewhat upsetting, it's like, oh, okay, we won't expose you to that at all. And you kind of wonder whether it really serves the educational needs of our country to have our to have our students bubble wrapped <laughs> from from basically anything with any kind of violence or racism or misogyny or it's it's like it's essentially we end up whitewashing our history and our culture. Well the the best story of this I heard was um 
a class at some Ivy League school, I think, that was like a class on the effects of war in the 20th century. And one of the students walked out and tried to sue the school because of rape being brought up in that class, you know, because she wasn't because she wasn't there to take class on rape. And it brought up her own history of being a victim of sexual assault in a way that was so damaging to her that she sought ju- like judicial retribution. And but like that's that's exactly what you're talking about, the whitewashing of history, because how can you take a class on war and not expect rape to be a major topic? It's it's actually vitally important that when we learn about war, when we study war, that we openly talk about the fact that sexual assault of civilians has been an instrumental part of war. Like that that's actually really important to talk about. And they effectively got that part of the class sucked out of the curriculum. That was the end result, is that they dropped that from the curriculum, as far as I recall. Wow. So, do we have a problem with this? I have a tremendous problem with it, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of I mean, a lot of people would be, okay. So they put up some nice messages in the bathroom, you know, because we we need a boost. I mean, right. I, so I, the flip side the... is like, well, what's really wrong with it? Is it hurting anyone? It just you know. And um, the other thing I'm kind of wondering is why just in the girls' bathroom? Right. So now we now we get back to sort of the kernel of this, which is. What people are going to say is this is the seed of snowflakeism. Yeah. I mean, I could see this as doing this like if someone just spontaneously did this and put up a bunch of signs in the bathroom and it was there for like a week or so that that would be. And then they eventually like fall down. They clean up, get clean. But the idea is like, no, we're not even we're not. We're just the thing that sort of struck me is like, yeah, we have no plans to change. This is just the new normal. We're just going to have affirming messages and not mirrors. The idea that looking in the mirror is something that might be considered upsetting. I mean, just, yeah, I mean, your own, just, issue. I mean, I mean, who does, I mean, everyone pretty much starts the day, you know, getting ready to go anywhere looking in the mirror. So an, <laughs> an affirmational message is not in and, of, in and of itself a negative thing, but the concept of replacing a mirror mm-hmm. literally replacing about, reality like, what about like a replacing frame, reality with they, an affirmation what if message? they made it like a frame around the mirror that says like you're wonderful but there was actually a reflective part where you could like fix your makeup or brush your teeth or comb your yeah, hair i do <laughs> like they were they replaced a thing that is functional with a thing that makes people feel good and I think the making people feel good is important. I think that that is really important. And in general, I think putting up affirmational posters in both bathrooms in high schools uh, could actually be a great thing. And I do think that it should probably be in both girls' rooms and boys' rooms. The fact that some high school kids put up some signs in their bathroom and it's national news and you and I are talking about it. Is a sign about how this is being interpreted. <laughs> I just figured what could be, I mean what could better go with our theme of, of the precious, precious snowflakes exactly yeah because you and I and in a, in a, I mean you and I to a certain extent are I mean the precious snowflakes thing did not start with the millennials whatever we even define as millennials it's been going on for a while I mean yeah. it, I mean I mean I mean it's considered a, an epithet now to well call let's someone a snowflake if but. we're really going to talk about which generation was filled with the most like. Yeah, you can do no wrong. You're the best. Be an individual and be awesome. Self-esteem. It's not 
it's really not the millennials. It's mm-hmm. really the baby boomers. Ah. I, w- I would really argue that, that specifically those who came of age in the 70s, when the civil rights era was had wound down and the hippie era was winding up. Well, yeah, now what we've got is all those people's kids who are right. <laughs> the new generation of snowflakes. I mean, it's interesting. My, my parents are not baby boomers. Even though I'm sort of, I don't know, what am I? I'm either a really uh, young Gen Xer or a really old millennial. I was born in during the Carter administration in 1977. So most uh, definitions of Gen X, sometimes they go to 1980, sometimes to 75. Usually uh, for millennials, it either starts at 85 or 80 or something yeah. like that. So I'm sort of right on, on the, the cusp. But, but here's the thing. My, my mother is a member of what's known as the silent generation, whereas my father's uh, a member of uh, what's often referred to as the greatest generation. My father is a World War II veteran, believe it or not. He was pretty young, but but he was like 17 when he joined the Navy in in 1943 and fought in World War II. My mother, born before, uh, or actually sort of like in the middle of the Great Depression, she was born in 1938 and uh, and grew up in the post-war, but not the baby boom years. So it's it's, it's interesting that I come from... A, fa- a family with a diverse political background, but also one that's not uh, that, that's different than from most of my peers in my yeah, age group. Mine is similarly multi generational. My dad grew up in sort of rural Oregon as part of the Silent Generation. He was he was born uh, in the early days of World War II, long before the baby boom. Right. And my mother was a real baby boomer born, you know, child of, of a soldier, uh, born after the war in New York, you know, in the city. Um, so they come from very different places and culturally and yeah, the, Oh yeah. My, my family is, I mean, my mother grew up kind of in a rib rock Republican, you know, suburban Cincinnati in the, uh, you know, in the 1950s, whereas my dad came from uh, uh, southwest Louisiana, east Texas, you know, where the only, I, I think there was only like maybe one or two white Republicans in the entire, hmm. in the entire county. Like almost, I mean, if there were all, almost the only Republicans around were, were black people. At the, when my dad was, was growing up, day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his uh, my dad's uh, his he had a, an uncle who was like one of the very few Republicans around, and it was a little it was definitely different. <laughs> yeah, my two grandfathers. He was one not a big them, fan of Lyndon Johnson, that's for sure. But. <laughs> one of my grandfathers was turned down for uh, for service in World War Two because. He was already old, and he was the only school teacher in the area. Mm-hmm. You know, rural Oregon. He needed to stay, so he didn't serve in World War II. Um, and then my dad was born. My other grandfather was the navigator of a bomber. He lost his oh, lost so, an arm and an eye. So we agree that pirate. We agree that the you know the the greatest generation the and the uh, silent generation not terribly snowflakey, right? Pretty much no. you know people who are pretty serious, you know, t- don't expect to have stuff handed I to them. It, I think it's really the seventies, like flower child, do all the drugs, hippies. Yeah, and my who parents... are the origin of snowflakiness, and that that really doesn't. I mean, that doesn't really apply to even my mom, who's technically a boomer, 
but who really came of age <laughs> in the civil rights era, not in the yeah, hippie era. Yeah, I mean, era. my mom was a little old. I mean, my mom went through that whole 60s, you know, hippie dumb, but she was a little old for the real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was around it, but she was like in her late 20s and 30s when, all, and you know, raising kids when all that kind of stuff was going on. And my dad, he was 50 when I was born, so... Yeah, my pretty dad. Much, pretty grown up. <laughs> my dad was already a university administrator when the flower children happened. Like he was already married with a kid. Okay. Same so, deal. So, so are we snowflakes? Are we part of that whole culture of? <laughs> well, we technically exist at the same in the same time frame. Because pers- I mean, new the thing that generation. the thing that that makes me sad when I when I when I look at like the environment that goes on in high schools and colleges is just the idea that we're lowering our, our, our standards, that people want to be more insulated from reality and just negative feelings in general. And so, I mean, that's just part of how you become a functional human being is to learn to yeah. cope with things. Now I'm not saying that people who have been victims should be forced to relive. I mean, there's always, there've always been, uh, you know, ways for people to, you know, go and you know talk to your well, to your educator if there's a material that you know you're specifically going to have a problem with. But for the most part, I, I I don't think we need to worry that much about what we I mean expose people to. And a lot of it comes down to you know the the end result of a lot of the so-called snowflakeism the is censorship. Yep. And, yeah, a, and a dumbing down of our culture that where we only talk about you know happy positive stuff things that are affirming and empowering and I think, not really talking about reality i think one of the things that has made us closer and that has also drawn us both to libertarians and libertarianism is that i think both of us have a good eye for uh well, I see that the problem here is real, but I think you're taking the solution in the wrong direction. Let's let's address right. the problem in a more fundamental way instead of a, well, yeah. instead of making a solution that reduces freedom and reduces <laughs> well, it's it's, uh, it's funny what people are exposed to. It's funny. My father, who you know grew up a Democrat in the South and considered himself pretty liberal in his youth, you know, going to, from the time he got out of the Navy and went to college, always considered himself very politically liberal, but then became gradually more conservative, uh, you know, starting in the 60s, whereas my mom was kind of the opposite, became more liberal <laughs> during that time. But one thing he always told me is like, well, it's natural to be liberal when you're young. He said, "I." He's like, "It's a, I." Even though my dad is a uh, considers himself a conservative Republican, I remember him telling me in my youth, "You know, it's don't." I'd be, I'd be, I'd be shocked if you were, if you weren't liberal. You're supposed to be liberal when you're young and idealistic, and as you get older, you gradually, you know, the the way you see the world starts to shift, well, and, and you tend to become more interested in preserving tradition and well, and being, as you and get being older, more conservative, and you look at the younger generation a little bit differently as as less, you know, tied to you know reality that they're more about. Well, and as you get older, your your <laughs> liberal becomes tomorrow's conservative. Well, sure. That's like true. people <laughs> people who are for people who are very liberal for mm-hmm. civil rights during the civil rights movement, they haven't stopped being for civil rights. They're just like, okay, civil rights was my thing. The things you're fighting for are beyond the pale for me. I stopped here, so now I'm a conservative because I want to conserve those things that I was fighting for when I was young. Well, sure, and and, and my dad, for example, in the in the early fifties, 
you know, he was really against uh, McCarthyism and because he knew better. He, he lived and worked in Hollywood and he knew that it was a it was a witch hunt and that it was a bunch of nonsense. And he and his own father had a huge falling out over McCarthy. McCarthy. My my grandfather thought McCarthy was like a, a, a patriot, you know, doing God's work and protecting us from those damn commies. And they had this uh, apparently, I mean, this happened in 1950, whenever, but apparently they had this huge, you know, screaming argument that uh, ended with uh, uh, my father, you know, saying to his his dad, you know, well, dad, I would love you even if you were a communist. And his, and his father, my grandfather, saying to him, well, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you then. You know, no son of mine would, would say anything like that. And they didn't talk for over a decade because of that. So Yikes. it's and it's interesting. Yeah. And my dad now, it, now that he's 90 years old and is very jaded with the current state of politics, he's by no means a, a fan of Trump. But he's he's I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe him other than kind of a cynic. <laughs> when it comes to politics, and I can't say that I really blame him, because when you've you know watched throughout your whole life the whole arc of, I mean, you just have a broader perspective when you're that age. You've you've lived through so many good and bad presidents. I mean, his entire youth, you know, Hoover was president when he was born, but the only president he ever remembered from his youth was Roosevelt, hmm. all the way into his early adulthood. It, to him, uh, he he said, "Well, for for my generation, Roosevelt was like a king. It seemed like he had been president forever, and he always would have been. And we we probably after winning World War II, we probably would have, you know, a lot of us probably would have been happy to declare him dictator for life, like Julius Caesar. But uh, and that's one of the reasons why why we probably should have term limits is because when yeah, people get a little bit too successful and too popular, that was know? the republic. That, that Roosevelt's the fourth Party. term. You know, I mean, we were in the middle of a war. It, oddly enough, it was Hoover who uh, whose campaign slogan was in 1932 was "Don't switch horses." <laughs> When, um, but uh, that's that was the overriding sentiment that kept uh, Roosevelt in office. When the Republican Party briefly retook control of the Senate during Truman's presidency, mm-hmm. their first order of business was like, "Okay, four terms of Roosevelt was a thing that happened. Let's make term limits happen now." Right. right. Uh, I will say my favorite anecdote about McCarthyism is um, is you know Nixon ran for Senate in California. As a firm McCarthyist, <laughs> and he ran sixty-two, or yeah, like he was. Or no, was or no, 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 no. It was yeah, earlier than that. Right. Oh, 50s, you're right, you're 50s. right. Yeah, I was thinking of his governor. And he was. Uh, he ran. Uh, I've forgotten her name, but he ran against a, a a woman who is the incumbent Democratic senator, and he smeared her as being a communist. Um, and at the time, Democrats talked about like, ah, oh, this is terrible. He's smearing a Democrat. Nixon received a letter that said, I cannot come out and publicly support you, but I believe in what you're doing. I believe it's important to get the commies out of the Senate. Here's the maximum amount I could donate. And it was from John F. Kennedy. Huh. Well, maybe he supported the ends, but not the means. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Well, have we de-operationalized I think so. Podcast? We've certainly destructured it. Okay. This has been a meandering one. Well... That concludes this special deoperationalized episode of Precious Snowflakes. I'm Lelius Rose. I'm Ben Phelps. And we will see you next week. Or we won't be seeing you. We'll, we'll, you'll be hearing us. You'll be hearing us next week. Yes. You're captive. Probably. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Cue the outro.